Let's go ahead and pray before we start going into the Bible, okay? Father, thank you for the way you love us. Thank you for the way you sent your Son into this world to die for our sins. God, thank you for the creation of music that we were able to sing to you and glorify you. I I pray that you uh, received glory through that. I pray that it, it blessed you. I'm just I'm thankful for for what music is and what it does, and that um, it gives us um, a medium to be able to praise you. Um, but now I pray that as we focus our attention on your word, that we would praise you in the way we read it. We would praise you in the way we study it. God, that you would take over my mouth and my heart, that you would use this time to bring Jesus glory, that you would use this time to make us different, that this would be a time where your spirit has free reign to change us, to make us new, to renew our minds and our hearts through your word. We give you all of our attention. I pray that you will be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are going to finish up Luke chapter 8 today. So um, Luke 8 is where we're going to be. And this is actually the story of a little girl and a grown woman. Um, and they both encounter Jesus. So we're going we're gonna to read about them and <clears throat> see what happens when they encounter the Lord. Um, starting in verse 40 of Luke 8, it says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, excuse me, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So, this, uh, just for you guys who are taking notes, I see a lot of diligent note takers right at this moment. I can hear the pens moving. Okay. Um, this also takes place in Mark chapter 5, and it also takes place in Matthew um, chapter 9. Let me double check the Matthew 9 reference real quick. Yes, Matthew chapter 9, um, starting in verse 18. And one of the cool things, and I, I think I've pointed out a few other times, is that when we take the story or the account of Matthew and the account of Mark, and the account of Luke, we can lay them on top of each other like a transparency. And um, we can lay them on top of each other like a transparency that gives us a fuller picture. And one of the things I noticed when I was reading, um, when I was reading this earlier, was that Matthew's account is a little bit different than... Mark's account and Luke's account, and they all are a little bit different from each other, but Matthew has a little bit different um, dialogue with with Jairus here. And uh, as I was looking at it, at first it was like, oh, that's kind of confusing, but it's it's kind of a puzzle that you're able to look at it and go, okay, well, does this mean that that can't have happened because it says something different in Luke than what it says in Matthew? And really, if you lay them on top of each other, there's no conflict whatsoever. It's just the story becomes more complete. Um, and I, I want you guys to be able to take that same approach when you read any passage in the Bible, lay it against another passage of the Bible, and you'll have a more complete picture and a more complete story. Uh, don't forget that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. Any other commentary, as respectful as I I am of certain people who have written commentaries. Um, it's the opinion of man versus the anointed word of God. And so that's something to always bear in mind that the scripture always gives a better commentary on itself than any other commentary you're going to read. So I didn't want to get into that too much, but here we have this, this um, it says in verse 40, now when Jesus returned, Returned means that you were gone, right? You had gone somewhere. Well, we talked about 
um, when we did this two weeks ago, how Jesus went across the sea, remember? And uh, when he went into the area of the Decapolis, uh, there was the the demon-possessed men. The one of them was named Legion, and Jesus healed them, right? And then the people asked him to leave because they were afraid of him. He left, and he returned from... You guys listening? He returned from that area and came back to Capernaum where he's from. And when he when he um, gets back across, there's a crowd waiting for him. Um, and it says the crowd welcomed him. Um, I believe Matthew might be the one that says they were waiting for him. But, well, here it says they welcomed him for they were all waiting for him. So my apologies, it says right here in Luke. Uh, it says, and there came a man, Jairus, who was the ruler of the synagogue. The ruler of the synagogue, remember the synagogue for the Jewish people back then, and even now there's a synagogue here in Missoula. It's sort of like what we would have, if he being the ruler of the synagogue, he would have been like the head pastor of the synagogue of Capernaum. I mean, that's similar to how we would look at it here in American eyes, with American eyes. Um but he would have been the one in charge of, of that. So he would have been a respected guy. And I can't help but think that there was a crowd waiting for him, partially because in this town of Capernaum, in a sense, the pastor's daughter was sick and they wanted him. They were all, you know, waiting for Jesus to see if he would come heal them or heal her, excuse me. Um, so we have... Jesus showing up, the crowd all around, and Jairus falls down at Jesus' feet. He says he implored him, he begged him, he urged him come to come to his house. It says in Mark, I'm gonna, I want to read what he says in Mark. He says, because it's kind of almost heartbreaking the way Jairus says it. Mark chapter 5, here we go. It says uh, in verse 23, he implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. This man Jairus falls down at Jesus' feet and says, my little girl is going to die. I need you to come to my house. See, his only hope is Jesus. The only hope he has of his little girl being saved is that he can get Jesus, this man whom he's heard of, to come and touch her and heal her, and make her better, right? That's his only hope. Guys, that's a good reminder as we look at like where politics are right now, how certain people, with it being an election year, certain people put their hope on certain candidates for president or for Senate or whatever, that especially in a presidential election year, people have their hope really set on a particular candidate. And as Christians... We need to guard ourselves and keep our hope where it belongs, and our hope belongs in Jesus. It says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is our hope. The only hope we have as Christians isn't in electing the perfect person, but it's in the perfect person being Jesus. Does that make sense? Our hope, where we rest our hope, where we put our future is in Christ. Not in the political system or in a politician. Vote, yes. Pray about who to vote for. But hope in Jesus. Okay? This world will have disappointment. I think it was John Corson that said, God sends daily disappointments to make us long for heaven or something along those lines. Um that our hope belongs in Christ. And that's really just a side point, but I want us to remember that we hope in Jesus. Not in things of this earth, but in the King of Heaven. So let's move on. Move on. Jairus was hoping in Christ. He fell at Jesus' feet and implored him, please come. And so Jesus said, okay, I'll come to your house. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman 
who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians or doctors, she could not be healed by anyone. Verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased or it stopped. So this, there's this woman. So Jesus is, meets this crowd, meets Jairus who falls at his feet and begs him, please come heal my daughter. And Jesus says, okay, I'll go. And he goes. And on his way there, as the crowd is around him, no doubt following him to Jairus' house, this woman sneaks up behind him and just reaches out and touches the edge of his robe. It says in Mark that she thought in, in her mind, or she, she thought to herself, if I can only reach out and touch the hem of his garment, then I'll be healed. So she has in her concept, Jesus is my only hope. And if I reach out, and if I just touch him, if I make that contact with him, I'll be healed because he is that powerful. Now, her she's a little bit misguided in like thinking that, oh, if I, only, if I can only actually touch him, I'll be healed. But she's right in going to Jesus to be healed, right? So even with her being a little bit wrong, she's going to the right place. She's going to Jesus. But where it says that she touched the hem or the fringe of his garment, um, have you guys seen uh, those the robes that like a a Hasidic Jewish person a Hasidic Jewish person will wear the robe with the tassels? Um, literally, what she did was grab a hold of one of his tassels. The word is actually the word for those tassels, like on Jonah the Veggie Tales movie where he's like teasing him, put four tassels on your cloak. Those tassels that he was referring to. That's Jesus obviously had that cloak for her to reach out and touch him. And it's, it's interesting because this is pretty much semi-useless information, but kind of useful. I've actually been, uh, it was actually in Portland, Oregon, where um, I was with a friend of mine who was half Jewish. And he walked up to these guys who were obviously Orthodox Jews and, and said, hey, I see that you've got these these, um, I don't know, these aprons, for lack of a better word, and they've got these tassels, why do you wear those? And he knew the answer. He was just trying to strike up a conversation with them. Um, but what the, the Orthodox Jewish man said was, oh, well, each of these tassels has 613 strands on it for the 613 laws that are found in uh, the books of Moses. And... Every time I touch the the fringe, it reminds me, it helps me meditate on God's law. It helps me think about God's law. And I can't help but think that, okay, Jesus is wearing this. And it's got the tassels. And the tassels represent the law. And Jesus said what in Matthew? Don't think that I came to abolish the law, but I came to fulfill the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And in a way... This lady reaches up and meets Jesus at the point of the law. And this, I'm really stretching for this one, but she reaches up and, and touches that point of contact. And she meets him there. And in a way, we too come to the law. We see the Ten Commandments and we recognize that we can't keep them. That the Bible says, Thou shalt not commit murder. And Jesus said in Matthew 6, You've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, that whoever hates his brother without a cause is guilty of murder. He's already murdered him in his heart. So Jesus takes the the Ten Commandments and he, he uses them and says, No, it's not just about your outward actions that you can be guilty of. God weighs out the heart, which was actually revealed in the Old Testament anyways because God said that through Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? I, the Lord, test the heart. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10. Um, God has always looked at the heart. And if we look at even the 10th commandment, which is what? You shall not covet. How do you outwardly covet? Paul brings this up in Romans. 
where he says, and I read the law, you shall not covet. And I was cut to the heart because I knew I was guilty. And that's a paraphrase. But essentially he's saying, you shall not covet. That's an inside sin, right? And the thing is, is that you don't commit one of those outward sins like murder or adultery or lying or dishonoring your parents. You don't do one of those without first coveting. You don't do one of those without breaking the first commandment and having another God instead of him, whether it be ourselves or an idol. And in a sense, this lady came to Jesus and she reached out and touched what she deemed to be his authority. And she touches that and by faith she's healed. I'm not making that up. Jesus said that. Your faith has healed you. But she reaches out and touches that. And when we come to Jesus, I am so thankful that he fulfilled the law for us. He didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. And because of his righteousness, I am made righteous. Because his life was given up for me, I can have real life. It's a little bit of a sidetrack, but I think it's important that sometimes we, we today, we forget that the Ten Commandments still apply to us, but they apply to us in a different way. They apply to us for us to throw up our hands and cry out for the grace of God. Not doing away with the fact that God still uses that as a righteous standard. He's, just because Jesus fulfilled the law, just because Jesus fulfilled the Ten Commandments doesn't mean I'm free to murder doesn't mean I'm free to commit adultery. doesn't mean I'm free to do to honor dishonor my parents or to covet even. doesn't mean I'm free to do those things. But it means that though I fail at those things, though that's still God's standard of righteousness, Jesus fulfilled those things and he became my righteousness. 1 Thessalonians 5. Let me read, uh, I think it's verse 21. I love this verse. Excuse me, not 1 Thessalonians, 2 Corinthians. My mind is not going to the right place right now. There is a good verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, though. But that's not what I was talking about. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, says, For our sake he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. It means he never sinned. That, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, we become, because of the regeneration and the rebirth, the, the new birth, being born again, we become the righteousness of God because Jesus gave us his righteousness. That's so awesome. Um, going back to Luke, though, we see, it says, she, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Ooh, I should have gone into a little background on that. Not a ton, but some. She essentially had an issue for 12 years, it says, where she had a, uh, she menstruated for 12 years without stopping. And she spent all of her money on doctors and she tried to be healed. Why would that be a big deal? Well, besides it, the obvious of why it would be a big deal. It also makes her ceremonially unclean. According to Leviticus, um, let me pull it up here. Leviticus chapter 15, 19 through 33 says, let me just read uh, a little bit of it. Verse 19 says, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening and everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean everything also on which she sits shall be unclean whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water shall be unclean until the evening whoever touches anything and it keeps going but essentially not only um does touching someone who's going through that because blood is a big deal in the bible it's a big deal in the old testament and we'll get into that in a minute it's an impurity um, during that time. She didn't end at seven days. She didn't end at 12 years until she encountered Jesus. But she also, during that period of time, wouldn't have been allowed to go into the temple 
it would have affected her worship of God because there was an issue that prevented her from being ceremonially clean to be able to worship under the Old Testament covenant. Does that make sense? So it was a big deal because of the, you know, the awkwardness of it. It was a big deal because of the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The inconvenience of it. But it was also a big deal because she wouldn't have been able to worship like a normal Jewish woman would worship. It affected her relationship with God. And because of that, she spent all her money to get this done, to get it taken care of. And there were actual, like, whether you call them old wives' tales or snake oil or whatever, ways of trying to fix it, none of the first century ways that they had worked for her. But she heard about Jesus. And she, she saw there's a crowd waiting for Jesus. Oh, look, there he is. If I can just reach out and touch him, he will heal me. He has the power to heal me. See what I mean? She acknowledged that he had the, the power to heal her. So this is kind of a, um, I don't know about awkward, but it's kind of this weird moment happens. So there's all these crowds and the word in the King James says they're thronging about him. It means they're pressing in, literally almost crushing him. They're just, everybody wants to get by Jesus. Um, Verse 44, again, I've read it before, but I'll start there. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? Now remember, everybody's touching him. And Jesus stops everything. He's on his way to go heal Jairus' daughter, but stops everything to say, who touched me? <laughs> Seriously? And that's when all denied it, it says, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. In other words, I think it's in Mark where he says, and you say, who touched me? Like he adds that little bit to it. And you're saying, who touched me? Everybody's touching you. What do you mean who touched you? So it, to me, it's a little bit of a funny situation. But verse 46, Jesus, it says, but Jesus said, someone touched me. For I perceive that power has gone out from me. It wasn't just the touch, but Jesus is saying, somebody reached out in faith because I know that power came out. Not just, oh, I pow- there's a, pow- a little bit of a power leak or something like that, but he sensed somebody extended faith here. Somebody just got healed. And um, as I went for a walk today to try and process this situation, and process what was going on, I kind of thought of of myself as this woman because I, now think about this. So let me me finish this and then I'll I'll explain what I mean. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she'd been immediately healed. So what I mean is this. This woman kind of tries to go in under the radar in for like a sneak blessing or a a little private miracle. And that's how I can be because I'm I'm kind of like a little bit like I don't like attention. Um, I have it in me to not want attention drawn to myself in certain ways. And I could see being kind of like this, like, I really want to I really want to meet Jesus. I really want to encounter him. I really want to be healed by him. But I gosh, I don't want the attention really. I don't really want people to see me. I don't This is kind of an embarrassing issue I've been dealing with for the past 12 years and I don't really want people knowing about it. But what happens? Jesus is like somebody just got healed. We have to talk about this. I don't think Jesus' goal is to embarrass her at all. I think she was trying to go in for maybe a, a quiet a quiet healing or a quiet blessing. But she sees that, okay, it's too late. I'm found out. 
this can't be hidden anymore. She steps up and tells, this is what I dealt with, and Jesus, you healed me. She gives the glory to God. And I love that it says that she falls down at Jesus. She falls, She takes a position of humility. What did Jairus do when he saw Jesus? He fell down at his feet and said, please come heal my little girl. She falls down in humility at Jesus' feet. And she explains the situation. I think there's several reasons for why Jesus did this. A, it says in, in Matthew... He says, um, let, your, uh, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, a healing like this isn't just for a private matter. A healing like this is for God's glory. It's t- to show that Jesus does have the power. I've been, um, I was challenged this weekend, I got to go to the pastor's conference on the East Coast. And I got to hear, amongst other people, there was a lot of great teachings. I got to hear um, Jim Cimbala. I got to um, watch him, not watch, well, yeah, he was there, I saw him. But I got to hear the presentation he was giving on, from First Thessalonians that how the gospel went forth, not in word only, but also in power. And he kind of issued the challenge to all of us to go through the book of Acts and reread the gospel presentations. Just read how is the gospel presented so that we can become more biblical and better at presenting the gospel for people. Because Paul was claiming with the Thessalonians, I didn't just come to you just saying things, but there was a power in what in the message. There was a power in the gospel. And I want that power too, not to hoard to myself, but I want to see people's lives changed and not be the same. I want to be able to, in a very untainted way, be able to present the gospel so that you guys will know it, so that you guys can be saved, so that you guys will grow in your appreciation for what it is that Christ did for us. And one of those things that I see in the gospel presentations as I've been rereading some of the um accounts in acts is that they they'll go back and say jesus was real that should be a no duh statement jesus was a real guy he walked among you you saw him now remember when they're presenting these things acts chapter 2 when the church is born and pentecost happens and peter gives his first gospel presentation That's only 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. So no doubt, most of the people had seen him. Most of people knew he was a real person. But that was part of the gospel. Jesus was there. And he was approved by God based on the demonstration of power of miracles that he did among you. In other words, they said, you know he did miracles. You can't deny that he did miracles. And those miracles demonstrate the approval of God. They demonstrated that he was the Messiah. They demonstrated who he is and who he was when he was here. That's important. So Jesus stops her and says, who touched me? And the woman comes forward. But can you also imagine for herself that she was embarrassed and I may be presuming on the text a little bit, but she she obviously didn't want to be seen. She snuck up behind him and just touched the hem and was trying to sneak away. And so I think in a way, Jesus was letting her know, hey, you don't need to be embarrassed. You can come see me face to face. You don't have to sneak up behind me. You don't have to, to not be with me, but come see me face to face. Have that relationship with me. See, Jesus died to save us from our sins, yes, but he also died that we would have a right relationship with him. And I think that singling her out like that wasn't to embarrass her, but it was to say, you don't need to be embarrassed. It was to say, I love you. I know that you needed healing, and I want to acknowledge that I know that, and I want to acknowledge that you're healed. And then he tells her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
it wasn't the touching of the hem of the garment. It was the fact that she knew where to go. It was that her faith was in Jesus to heal. Does that make sense? It wasn't in the superstitious grabbing of a garment. It was in the fact that she went to the Holy One of Israel. She went to the Ancient of Days. She went to the great physician who could heal her. Though she'd spent all her money on physicians, she went to the greatest of physicians, the creator of the universe, to heal. And she received that healing. So let's move on. Now this happens. Now imagine Jairus is still there. He's still waiting. He's been expecting Jesus. Now he wants Jesus to hurry up and get to his daughter because she's dying. And can you imagine as a dad, him being like, we don't have time for this. I'm sorry for your troubles, lady, but we don't have time for this. I don't have, I don't have time to deal with this. We need to get to my daughter. She's dying. My little girl is dying. So all the meanwhile, Jesus decides to stop and, and focus his attention on this woman, which shows that he cares about this woman. But it had to be frustrating for Jairus. Because the next thing that happens is verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came, that's Jairus, and said, your daughter is dead. You imagine receiving that news? Your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. See, in in some ways, that's all some people saw Jesus as. Man, that guy's a really good teacher. I don't want to get too sidetracked on this, but that's pretty common today. Yeah, Jesus taught some really good things. And that's all they want to view him as is, is as a good teacher. Jairus wasn't there because he was a good teacher. Jairus was there because he could heal his daughter. Jesus is more than just a good teacher. Jesus said, if he's just a good teacher, he said this in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's one of his teachings. He taught exclusive salvation through himself. So how is he just a good teacher if he taught, I'm the only way you can be saved? He's more than a good teacher because even in that one teaching, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. He's teaching that he's the the way of salvation. He's teaching that he's the truth of God. He's teaching that he's the giver of life, real life, not just breathing air, but eternal life. That's who Jesus is, and that's what he accomplished. So, this one person says, don't trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. So, recognize this. This topic is this section is dealing with faith not that it's a teaching but it's real life practical faith he told the woman your faith has healed you he told the woman your faith has healed you go in peace and now he tells Jairus do not fear only believe belief and faith go hand in hand do not fear because fear and faith don't mix unless you're talking about fear of the Lord which is different than just being afraid do not fear and she will be well Now, if we look at the Matthew account, it says Jairus came to him basically and said, my daughter's dead. Will you go see her? And that's where I believe these fit together is that, is that Jairus first came for healing for his daughter. And then, then Jesus makes this comment, don't be afraid, only believe. And then I think Jairus's response was what's written in Matthew. My daughter's dead. Will you come to my house? Verse 51, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. How often do we think we know? But we're going to laugh at Jesus? 
we have these situations that come up that are really hard and we think we know this is an impossible situation. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, only believe. We don't know. He's Jesus. He knows. Right? If Jesus says anything, if there's anyone who knows, it's Jesus. But they laughed because they knew. They knew better. She's dead. You know what? She really was dead. But taking, oh, excuse me, verse 53, they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. Verse 54, but taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So I, I want to say a couple things here where it says that her spirit returned. When we die, our spirit leaves our flesh but our spirit lives on or our soul lives on her spirit returned. She came back to life, her flesh, her carne, her carcass at the time was ju just that it was flesh and bones. And because she had died, that part of her was gone, but Jesus called it back, called her back. There's a such thing as eternal life, and there's also a such thing as eternal death. It's real, and Jesus has the power over both. He gives life, and when we choose to reject the life that Jesus gives, he gives us what we want, which is not him. And since he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, since he is the life, and we reject him, the life, then we get eternal death. And that's what hell is. You see, it, hell is just us getting what we want, even though we don't want it. Because every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Even people who don't believe in the Lord receive good things from Him. We have oxygen. That's good. We can't live without it. <laughs> right? We We eat. Do wicked people eat just like Righteous people, they eat. God takes care of people. But there comes a point where we say, I, I reject you, God. I don't want you anymore. I don't want you at all. And he says, okay. And that's what hell is. So do I believe in a literal hell? Well, Jesus did, and I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the truth and never lied. So yeah. But I don't say that liking it. I don't say that saying, yeah, it's real and you're going to get yours. I don't want anyone to go. Part of the reason we moved to Montana was to prevent people from going to hell because there's a message that gives life. Because Jesus died on the cross for everyone in this room and everyone outside of this room. His grace is for them too. So her spirit returned. And she got up at once. It says in, I think it's Mark, where it says she got up and walked around the room. <laughs> and Jesus directed that they should, she should be given something to eat. This is a big application for us. But I need to touch on two things real quick. And then we'll wrap it up with the final application, okay? So spiritually, I see each person as both this woman and this girl. Because... As the King James says, this woman had an issue of blood. You and I have an issue of blood. We have an issue spiritually of blood. The Bible says that um, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. We have an issue because we lack forgiveness, because we lack the righteous blood to pay for those sins. Right? Right? So I wanted to read a couple of verses that deal with that. He says uh, in Romans 5, 9, it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, that's the blood of Jesus, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Our issue of blood that we have is we can't pay for our own sins because our blood is tainted. Our blood is has made us unclean. Um, 
And think about it this way. This woman who had this issue of blood was unclean and unable to worship. We are unclean apart from Jesus and unable to truly enter into worship without him, without the blood that he shed for us. Not only that, but it says in Leviticus, I read part of it, um, I think it was Leviticus 19, where not only is she unclean, but whoever she touches is unclean. But what happened to Jesus? She touched him. Did he become unclean? Not at all. How is that? Because he took away her impurity. Because he is the undefiled one who did not see corruption. He was able to heal her and take away her uncleanness and remain clean himself. And he does that for me and he does that for you. That when he died on the cross for my sins, he became sin. He became my uncleanness. But he was able to take that away. And in taking it away, when I placed my faith in him, he made me unclean too. Or he made, made me clean too. He made me able to worship. He restored my relationship with God. So you see this issue of blood, like I said in Romans 5, 9, we have been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Verse Uh, Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Colossians 1.20 says, And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. See, we had an issue of blood and that we were unclean. And Jesus took his blood, which was clean and righteous. And he spilled it and shed it for us. It says in Hebrews 10.4 that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Meaning the old covenant couldn't do it. It was just looking forward to the new covenant of what Jesus would do. I love this one in 1 Peter 1 verse 18. It says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We weren't bought with things like silver and gold, things that could, could tarnish, but we were bought with the only currency that heaven accepts, and that's the blood of Jesus. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can be made right. We, like that woman who had a real physical issue of blood, those of us, all of us, who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, have a spiritual issue of blood. And we're made righteous through the righteous blood of Jesus. I also see ourselves in the little girl. What happened to the little girl while, they, while Jesus was dealing with the, the woman? She died. She was dead. The Bible says in Colossians 2.13, and you, it's not and you, but and you, (laughs) who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that's Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Ephesians 2.5 says, even when you were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, the Bible says that our condition before Jesus is we're spiritually dead. But it says in these verses that it's, we're made alive by him. It's his resurrection. Though he died, he raised again. And through his resurrection, we have life too. This is kind of a scary one. Revelation 3.1, to the angel of the church of Sardis, Jesus, I don't have time to get into the context of Revelation here, but Jesus asked John to pen these letters to these churches. And to this church, he said, to this church in Sardis, these are, this is in quotes now, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That's scary. What does the Bible say before Jesus? We're dead in our trespasses and sins. 
I don't want to be a person who, or encourage a person who has a reputation for being alive, but is actually dead in their sins. Jesus said in Matthew, he said, many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. The criteria is knowing him. The criteria is being born again. That's what it is to be made alive because we're dead. Sure, we're born physically the first time, but in John 3, he said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. That's what makes us able to be heavenly dwellers, to be children of God. In John 1, it says that to them who believed, he gave the right to become children of God. And so I see ourselves even as that little girl where Jesus grabbed her by the hand and he pulled her up and said, arise. And that can be us too. We can arise. We can, we can be alive because Jesus grabs a hold of our life. This is so important. I don't want a single person to hear my voice and not know what the gospel is. Jesus died because we were guilty. He was innocent. He was buried because you don't bury living people. And he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. You see, that's another element that comes up in the gospel presentation, is that it's a fulfillment of the Old Testament when Jesus does this. The last application, because I'm thinking that, you know, you guys have heard me present the gospel before. You've heard other people present the gospel before. What's the application for us that have, are already alive? This might be another reach, but, and this will be fast. I see that after Jesus raised her, he says, it says, and he directed that she should be given something to eat. See, I didn't think of this until I went for a walk. I decided, okay, God, help me sort my thoughts out. She needed to be given something to eat. Have you been made alive? Has God made you alive through Jesus? Has he placed his spirit in you like it says in Ephesians 1? Are you born again of the spirit? If so, you need to be given something to eat. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, while being tempted of the devil, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. How soon after Jesus raising this little girl from the dead did he say, you need to feed her? Right away. When we become born again, we don't wait we don't wait to get in the word. We don't say, you know, I'll read that when I get around to it. Jesus said, a person who's been made alive needs to eat right away. Now, obviously there's a physical thing that took place and Jesus is like, look, it's necessary for this little girl to eat. But as an application for us, why do we starve ourselves? Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need the Word of God in us. We need to be in the Word of God. Not just reading it to check a box, but allowing His Word to penetrate into our hearts. Like it says in Psalm 119, to hide it in our hearts, to grab hold of His Word and own it and say, these are the words of my Savior. This is a love letter from the King of Heaven. When should we start reading His Word? Right away. And how often do we eat real food? Daily. We should try and not try. We should be in the word daily. Do I fail at this sometimes? Yes. But we should be in the word daily. We should be in the word daily. I know I've repeated myself, but I think it's an important point. I want to encourage each one of us to get into God's word, to know the author. Not only um, did he say, give her something to eat, and I think that applies to us reading the Bible. I think that applies Old and New Testament for us to be in it. But Jesus said in John six forty eight, I am the bread of life. We don't just need to read. We need 
Jesus. When we read Jesus, we look. When we read the words of the Bible, we look for Jesus in the Bible. We need to talk to Jesus while we read the word. Converse with them. What I like to do is when I, I read something that's just like, just completely amazing, I out loud say, thank you, Lord. Wow. Thank you for, for this truth. Thank you that this is real. Thank you for that promise. Help me to remember that promise. I have a conversation with him while I'm reading it. Some people might look at that as crazy, but that's what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians. Oh, you might look at us as though we're out of our minds, but it's for the sake of the gospel, he said. (laughs) So have conversations with Jesus and read his word. That little girl needed to be given something to eat, and anyone who's been made alive by God, by his spirit, needs to be fed to. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way you love us, for the way you take care of us, and the way you provide for us. You are so good. Help us not to make excuses for our sin, not to be content with being dead, not to be content with having that issue of blood, but to come to you and have your precious blood wash over us, to come to you and have your spirit make us alive. Lord, we don't want to be like the church of Sardis that had a reputation for being alive, but was actually dead. And Jesus, it was you who declared them to be dead. You're the author of life, you know. Search our hearts. Lord, help us to leave the dead things of the world behind and to cling to the things of life found in your word. Help us to be in your word. And Lord, teach us to converse with you. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit says. Help us to know the voice of our God. Like it says in John 10, that your sheep know your voice. We want to know your voice. We want to hear from you. We love you, Lord. And I pray that we would grow in you. And anyone who ever hears this, I pray that you would prick their ears, cut them to the heart, and have them say, what must I do to be saved? And if they're already saved, I pray they would rejoice in the God of their salvation. Lord, thank you for making us alive with Christ. Thank you that because he lives, I will live too. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.